This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 14 for April 2012, and our topic today is Oscar Fahardi's A Separation, a 2011 film from Iran that won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Feature. Your host for this episode, as usual, are Ken Morfield, that's still me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. So, Todd, we were looking at the IMDb summary before the podcast, and you had expressed some dissatisfaction with the plot summary at IMDb. Um, what do they get right, and, and <laughs> what do they seem to be missing, in your opinion, in terms of what the movie is all about? Well, Ken, the, the IMDb plot summary reads, A married couple are faced with a difficult decision. To improve the life of their child by moving to another country or to stay in Iran and look after a deteriorating parent who has Alzheimer's disease. And I would say, yes, all of those things are true. Those are all elements of the story. They seem to miss what, at least it, when, I, when I was watching the film, the, the bulk of the stress and conflict of the film seemed to be about um, a court case as part of, well, the title is A Separation, and at least one of the separations that we see is this husband and wife who are trying to make this decision about where they're going to live, um, and certainly the, their daughter's welfare is a big part of, of that choice. Um, but they're in the middle of, a, of divorce proceedings. They are living apart, and the husband is taking care of his father, who has Alzheimer's, and of course he cannot do this on his own, and so he hires a woman to come take care of his father during the day while he goes to work. And there is um, a, a conflict between the caretaker and the husband, and he pushes the woman, who is pregnant, and there is a miscarriage, and this then turns into basically a murder investigation, um, as far as the authorities are concerned. And we then are faced with all kinds of interesting conflicts as people are trying to navigate the legal system, um, tell the truth or not tell the truth, how these various interactions with each other and with the authorities are going to have long-lasting effects, and, and to me that seemed to be the, the more central. Right, um, so the description at IMDb is more of the, the setting at the beginning of the movie than right. what the movie is actually it's about. It's a plot summary. Right, it's, so... Yeah, it's a setting I, summary, I think is a good way to put it. I should say in the beginning of my introduction, I didn't give the standard disclaimer, but this is not a spoiler-free discussion so if you haven't seen the film yet uh do try to go out and see it first so when i was watching the separation at the 2011 toronto film festival i thought a lot about a film that i had seen a couple years earlier agora and specifically a comment that 
the director of Agora had said during a Q&A in which he said, this was not, this meaning Agora, was not an anti-religious movie mm-hmm. or an anti-Christian movie. It was an anti-fundamentalist movie. And I was thinking a lot about a separation as not being an anti-Islamic movie or an anti-Muslim movie or an anti-Iran movie. I do think you have that um, very typical trope of uh, a court case being used as an entry in, but that the real subject matter is about contemporary Iran and Tehran and what it's like. And certainly Iran is... And Tehran is presented in a way that I wouldn't want to live there. But, you know, the Irani government, which has imprisoned Jafar Panahi, does not seem to be at all upset about the film. Uh, so, you know, clearly Fahardi has done a job of not presenting it as being simply a, a slam against Iran. Uh, but I was thinking about that comment where I, I don't think it's an anti-Muslim movie or an anti-Islam movie, or an anti-Iran movie. But I do think it's an anti-legalism movie. And I think that distinction may be an important one in terms of why I want to talk about it on a podcast where we have mostly a Christian point of view, a mostly Christian uh, perspective. We're not limited to that. Uh, what do you think about that distinction? Do you, do you see that in the film? Do you agree with that sort of characteristic or assessment? Well, I, I certainly think that that element is there, you know, and we can talk about some of the different characters and, and how they are reacting or living with the legalism. I, I I do remember, you know, when I saw the film with you, and it was, I think, your second time seeing the film, and it, it was my first, Yeah, I was much more caught up, I think, in the... Um, kind of the moral choices of the individual characters. And certainly the religious environment was a factor. But I did think it was interesting that you you were focused much more on the legalism um, than than I felt. Although Mm -hmm. I I think that is certainly, you know, a factor um, in in the behavior of our Thing. And, and perhaps even a major factor in the reason why the wife wants to leave Iran to take their, their daughter. And I think it's important that it's a daughter out of Iran. Okay, so I think we need to tease that out a little bit because I hear you saying you are more focused on the moral choices and I was more focused on the legalism, which... To me, those things aren't necessarily incompatible, and I guess right. maybe we need to talk a little bit about you know which moral choices you inter- interested you, and maybe we need to define our terms too. Like when you hear the word legalism, what does that mean to you? I hear the word legalism. It's referring to a a certain kind of religiousness mm-hmm. that is um, incredibly rules based, right? Um, there is this external set of very defined, well, maybe that's where the, it gets tricky when you're talking about legalism. There, there seem to be very clearly defined rules. Um, and certainly the people that are practicing legalism attempt to very clearly define each and every single right and wrong. And then there are severe consequences for not 
falling in line. It gets tricky, and this is where I think where legalism, you know, really has its, you know, has a problem. Is that of course life doesn't fit into nice, neat little, you know, scenarios. You know, if you do X, then this, this, and this are correct, and this is not correct. And mm-hmm. I mean, I bring it up. I think you know, a fascinating part of the film is this: uh, the caretaker who's very devout. Mm-hmm. And and her faith is very sincere. I think we need to say that. I mean, she she is um, she is trying very hard to be a good Muslim. And she, whenever she is faced with some problems, there's a telephone number. I believe her name was Rezia. Rezia, I'm pretty sure that yeah. was Rezia. And you know, Rezia, there's a phone number that she calls up and can get on the spot. 24-7 advice mm-hmm. as to is this right or is this wrong. Um, and yeah, I, I found that fascinating. I just, you know, having grown up in some more legalistic backgrounds myself, I was like, there are, there are times I wish I would have had a phone number. Well, I mean, <laughs> I find it fascinating, and yet I also found it horrifying Sure, because of the implications of what does it mean that you have to have that phone number? And part of what's horrifying within the culture of this movie is you know you're living within an environment where that's almost a self-protective thing because the consequences of making any moral error, even something that would seem to us to be a rather small one or an ambiguous one, could be extreme, you know, right. could be in, in imprisonment or literally life-threatening. And so, I mean, it's worth saying that in the context of the movie, the reason she calls the number is because the old man that she's caring for uh, has wet himself and there's no one else in the home, and she wants to know, is it a sin for me to change him? Right. Uh, because I'm afraid that, you know, I might see his various body parts, and uh, even though there's no lust involved, is it, you know, what do I do? And there seems to be something that's uh, very paralyzing about that degree of legalism, where I'm so afraid of making an error that I I can't do anything. Uh, You and I have mentioned uh, a couple times that we've taught at Christian universities, Christian higher ed, and I've made the comment many times, not about my current institution, but at a more bible college that environment that I've taught in before that that degree of fear based on what will happen to me if I break one of the rules oftentimes in my estimation leads not necessarily to a more devout or virtuous person because I'm going to follow the rules it actually in in my my observation leads to weaker uh, Mm -hmm. religious faith because everything is dependent on someone else to tell me what is, you know, what is the right and wrong. And, of course, I can't do it. Uh, I can't do it perfectly. Right. So all of the effort that goes into trying to be virtuous at all actually goes into trying to uh, hide or keep up the the appearance of virtue. And I think you're making a very uh, interesting and necessary kind of descriptor there is fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in terms of our defining terms... Um, I think when we start talking about legalism, we are talking about fear. Um, there is a fear of breaking a rule, and 
the fear then of what what are the consequences for that. Mm-hmm. There is a fear of being judged by others. Right. Of how others look at me and if I fall short. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think underlying that fear of being judged is the fear that they're right. Um, and, you know, it really is a fear-based system as opposed to, you know, a non-legalistic you know, religious situation, which, yes, we want to be virtuous. We want to be doing right, but it is in a much, it's in an environment that is filled more with grace than it is with fear. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing to me about a separation is that Rezia seems to me to be in some ways the most legalistic, mm-hmm. but also the most sincere. She's legalistic because she actually cares and she right. sincerely believes that it is my duty to not sin. Um, and so I don't think that in this particular instance, the legalism has made her into a less virtuous person. I think in, in many ways, she's the most virtuous. Yeah. Uh, she certainly seems to be the one most plagued by doubt. Uh, but there's also a corollary that I think is, is very interesting in the film that the legalistic society makes her the most vulnerable because in an extent where everything's based on appearances, the person who is not willing to lie just a little, to bend the truth just a little, or to obfuscate just a little, is uh, very vulnerable to the people who are willing to manipulate the process. Right. Um, I think that's another thing that I discuss a lot in, in very legalistic societies when I talk about legalism, is that the more rigid a legalistic society is, where you're just caring about the law, the application of the law, not the principle, the easier it is for people who don't share a belief system or uh, a particular ideal to manipulate it. And a, a great deal of cynicism in the film about the court process uh, and, quite, you know, no one really seems to believe authentically that they will get justice right. or fairness or that that's even a con- consideration. Well, and we see this, I, I think, to me, a very striking scene was when they are coming before the investigator. And I, I'm not, it wasn't clear to me if he was the judge or just mm-hmm. an interrogator. Right. Um, but there, there comes this moment where he wants to talk to the daughter of the husband. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he, he sends the father out. The girl is standing there alone in front of the interrogator. And even the interrogator is expecting her to just simply spout some story that her father told her to say, not to say the truth. Right. He says, what do you have to tell me? And she says, you haven't asked me anything yet. And he says, well, didn't your father tell you what I was going to ask you? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, even the people that are, are the system, Mm-hmm. do not believe that the system is working the way that it quote-unquote should. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd, when we saw the film, you had expostulated at one point during the film that you that all of the characters had flaws and things to like about them, but as the film progressed, you found yourself really disliking the main character, the the guy, I, I believe his name was um, Nadir, mm-hmm. uh, played by Payman Moadi. 
which was interesting because I, I, I found myself somewhat sympathetic to him, uh, although that changed a little bit on the second viewing. Having had time to reflect, do you still feel roughly the same way? Have you softened towards that? Can you say a little bit about what it was that made you well, a little harsher in your judgment? Well, certainly watching the film and as the film you know, progressed, I, I, I did find it interesting. I was having a very visceral response, negative visceral mm-hmm. response to this, this father. Um, and and you know, to start with, the first part of the film, I, I, I really liked the guy. I mean, I, I could kind of sympathize with his situation. You know, his he wants to take care of his father, and that's a noble thing. Um, his father has Alzheimer's and is becoming increasingly unable to take care of himself. And having had some family members who had Alzheimer's and cared for, you know, Alzheimer's patient, I know what that's like. And so his stress I could sympathize with. But as the film goes on and as the situation develops, one of the, the patterns I saw in his behavior was this real, oh, what's the word? He refused to take responsibility for choices and instead would put them off on other people. And when he was doing that to his wife, you're kind of like, okay, well, she's an adult. You know, she can or cannot push back on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the part of the story that just really sent me over the edge was the way he would basically pawn off huge decisions onto his daughter, who's, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. Um, and, and putting her in very untenable positions of having to make these very difficult choices that have psychological ramifications of, I got, you know, I'm going to choose my mother over my father or, you know, doing these sorts of things. I'm going to uh, choose the truth over my father right. going to prison. Right. Or... And, and he would always phrase it in these ways of like, well, you know, it really is up to you, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that sort of, you know, yes, you obviously know what I want you to do, but it's your choice. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, that seemed to me to be both manipulative and in a very paradoxical way, putting, you know, manipulating the other person, putting the responsibility totally off of me. And to do that to your own child just seemed to me, I I just had a really hard time with that. Right. I'm not sure he did know what he wanted her to do. I think, I mean, I think there was a part of him that wanted her to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll go back to a phrase that you had used earlier about uh, not taking responsibility for decisions. I know what you're meaning, but I think in the context of the podcast, that's, I I should explain, I think you're talking more about a passive-aggressive thing, uh, Uh trying to slough off the responsibility for making a decision, uh, not necessarily for taking responsibility for decisions he's already made. Well, and and also not... I mean, he was willing to take the responsibility of the consequences of the Mm -hmm. choice, but he wanted her to make the choice. To make the choice, right. Um, So I think in in that way, it's there's a kind of a passive aggressiveness or or a fear-based thing, which, you know, had a little bit of sympathy for me because, again, I start with the whole frame that I'm looking at all of these people caught in an environment that's unhealthy right. and thinking about the way that he's caught in an environment that's unhealthy, which is he wants to do the right thing. He wants to be a moral exemplar for his daughter. He wants to reinforce for his daughter that being truthful 
and following the letter of the law, you know, is a good thing. But he doesn't want to go to prison for something that he may or may not have done, that may or may not have had this, you know, uh, particular cause. He doesn't believe deep down that uh, the system is not corrupt so that actually telling the truth is a defense you know that you know the honest man need fear no consequences uh because if you tell the truth everything will will just work out in the end and so i yeah i mean i definitely saw the pressure that he put the daughter in uh i tended to excuse it a little bit more as a sign of weakness or struggle Mm -hmm. than uh, a character flaw but I think, you know, that's part of the strength of the movie is it shows how psychologically we can cast wrong decisions as I'm just weak, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to this is morally wrong. And how systems, you know, we're ultimately responsible for the decisions that we make. We can't just blame the system and say, right. well, this is, I was not. But how systems can make it easier or harder for you to do the right thing as you see it. And uh, one of the things that I saw consistently across the board is that this system that they lived under seemed to, you know, put huge amounts of pressure on people to do the right thing. There are these penalties if they were caught not doing the right thing. But weren't really designed to actually promote spiritual development or mature development or actually do the right thing. There there was all these disincentives to doing the right thing. And I think that's, you know, when we start looking at those systems, and certainly my, my initial reaction to the father was in the dramatic flow of the film, you know, I found myself being very focused on the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I did think it was in- interesting, you know, your response, you know, on a second viewing was looking, you know, those outside structures. And I think, and I wonder if I, wa- if I watched the film again, would I pay p- more attention to that layer? Right. But, you know, we talked about legalism at the beginning of, of the show. And, and I think one of the things we see here is, you know, you and I have grown up, certainly we have, we have, been a part of legalistic environments, but that they weren't the state. Right. Um, and I think, you know, and, and, you know, the legalistic environments we've been in are bad enough, but when you actually have a state situation where, you know, you cannot, you know, this, you know, regardless of our American ideal of separation of church and state and all that kind of thing, I'm not convinced that any state of any kind is going to be able to you know, impose a spirituality mm-hmm. on a people. And so you, you do end up with these legalistic rules that, that are not going to encourage mm-hmm. spiritual development. They're just, these are the, you know, this is the law. Right. And, you know, and we can get into a nice conversation about the law. Well, and if we want to go there, I mean, I guess that's back to why is this film important to me as a Christian? Right. Uh I don't want to say that's the direction we're headed in in the country. That may sound too apocalyptic. But I think our country is currently struggling with we're becoming increasingly polarized in our political rhetoric Mm -hmm. and a certain set of religious values, you know, are associated with one part, you know, with one party. Uh, And I think the other party is not so much associated with pluralism in the way that it used to be or it ought to be as with, you know, secular, you know, secularism. Um, 
but that the other party is really associated not with Christianity, but with fundamentalism and legalism and mm-hmm. enforcement. And I think there is in some ways a cautionary tale that we can take out of a separation. I doubt that it would necessarily sink in because I think the people who would get the most out of the cautionary tale aren't going to be watching the movie about right. be very careful what you wish for. Um, sure. Because the law of unintended consequences means this is not, uh, it won't always have the same effect that you want. And I think a lot of people do wish, oh, I, you know, it would be great if I had the, the full force and power and momentum of the state behind my moral choices and my moral vision of the way that society would want to be. Um, but the reality of the fact is, is that, you know, once the state starts dictating that at all, how long does it stay yours? And when yeah. does it become a corruption of yours uh, that becomes bondage for you rather than, you know, freedom for you to do what you want and put someone, you know, bend someone right. else to your... And, and how long before, you know, that those values and virtues that you hold dear, they themselves become perverted because it's no longer than a, a virtuous way of life. It becomes a system that you're constantly trying to, to play around. Right. Um, you're trying to get around, you know, the, the legalities uh, of things. And then, you know, and we, you know, we see various, in various places in history, you see how that works out. I mean, you think, I think about, you know, the Jewish religion and yes, there's the Torah, but then the others, how many, thousands of pages of people trying to figure out, well, what do, you know, what is the exact... What does that mean? What does work mean? Right. Um, and how many steps am I allowed to take? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, that that's at least... If and then you've got Jesus breaking the Sabbath and saying, well, the Sabbath was not made for man, man for the Sabbath, and what does that mean, you know? Exactly. Um, so I think, you know, from a Christian perspective... You know, that idea of grace, of, you know, watching Christ get at the spirit of the law mm-hmm. rather than being so concerned with every jot and tittle. Right. Um, is is important for us to remember. Well, and there's a couple parables that are on point, too. I mean, I'd certainly thought a lot in wake of the film of the parable of the workers where, you know, some of them get hired and agree to a contract, right? you know, and then other people get hired and they get paid the same amount. And the, the first workers are like, Hey, you know, that's not fair. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, that parable really reinforces that we want the protection of the law so that we can't be taken advantage of. We can't get any worse than anyone else, but we also want a certain flexibility. We don't want to be beholden to the law that, right. that, and I think we undercount our, um, you know, I think we undercount our own sinfulness, even as redeemed Christians who are hopefully being sanctified and getting closer to purity. But I mean, I also think, you know, the parable of the man who had his debt forgiven yeah. and then goes and says, pay me what you owe me, you know, that we want everyone else to be held to the law, but we want a measure of grace and wiggle room for, for us, our, you know, ourselves. And, and I think that's a very dangerous place to be in spiritually. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly Jesus warns that that's a very dangerous, right. you know, be very careful about the measure with which you, you judge other people. Uh, and it's of course ironic um, that in Iranian 
film uh, can, I think, really illustrate that for us if, if we've got the ears to hear beyond the surface, just sort of the measure of, I don't think it's ultimately a film about Islam so much as ultimately a film about our relationship with our faith mm -hmm. and how we try to enact it on an individual and corporate level. Well, I think that brings us back to your opening kind of distinction, you know, and the observation of the, the director of Agora, mm -hmm. that, you know, these films are not against the individual states that they're about. They're not against the concept of religion. They're not against the individual religious faiths. But they seem to, it seems to be very much against fundamentalism. Right. And which reminds me, I'm, I'm blanking on the author who wrote the book, but there's a book several years ago called Fundamentalisms. Mm -hmm. and, and it really was looking at the kind of the phenomenon of fundamentalism as something separate from whether right. it's Christian fundamentalist or Islamic fundamentalist or, you know, Hindu fundamentalist or whatever, but that fundamentalism itself was some separate force or kind of cast of religion. Um, and, I, and I think that's something we worth thinking about. Yeah. Well, or just as an example of it not being an anti-Iranian film or an anti-Islam film, you and I had talked about uh, one of the scenes that really struck me even stronger in the second viewing was there's a place in which Nadir is, is in jail because he can't post bond pending an investigation. And he and his wife are already separated. And right. his in-laws put a mortgage on their house or put their house up as collateral to get him out of jail. Now, you know, some of that has to do with the granddaughter right. and making sure that she has her father out. Uh, but then the grandmother also comes to him and is like, you know, what's wrong with you that you didn't tell us and give us the opportunity to help? And so, you know, there's a wonderful illustration of people who just have and take seriously the virtue of hospitality, mm -hmm. the virtue of family and responsibility for, for family. Um, and I was just, you know, I was trying to think in my own life or in my own culture that, you know, if a couple got divorced, you know, how many in-laws of a separated right. uh, couple would put their house up for mortgage just because, well, you're family and that's what we're expected to do. And that's what, you know, we're called to on our values. Right. Uh, so I think that you get a nice contrast between the sort of state-run religion and how that focuses on the legalism and how in people's individual lives it's about human relationships and how the religion gives you a guideline towards um you know just or virtuous relationships in your day-to-day -day transactions right. with other people well and that brings me to like the end of the film mm -hmm. um and we have this interesting scene where the Nader and his family and Raja and her family have come to some agreement about how they're going to handle this legal situation they're in. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that fascinated me about that in terms of the culture and, 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 you know, seeing some really interesting positive things was, you know, this agreement wasn't going to be sealed in a courtroom. It was, they were eating together. Mm -hmm. They were going to have a meal together. And and even though it was very clear that not everybody wanted to be there, mm -hmm. they were. Right. And there was something about, hey, it, we are at table together. 
that means we cannot be enemies. We're within the community. It's a community. neighborhood community. Or... And they, yeah, there were people from, you know, there were uncles and, you know, neighbors. Um, it, it was a, it really was a community healing itself. Mm-hmm. Or um, trying, trying to. Trying to. <laughs> trying to. Making the attempt. And I guess that's mm-hmm. one of the things that struck me was that, you know, in our culture, as, you know, civilized as we like to be, mm-hmm. I mean, how, mu- how many of us even know our neighbors? Mm-hmm. To be able to then say, oh, you know, we've had this dispute over, you know, that tree that's growing over my yard or whatever. Let's mm-hmm. let's have dinner together and talk about it. Yeah, um, that's just much less. I may have had a miscarriage, and yeah, much you know, less. You may, yeah. you, I think you're responsible for the death of him, you know, right? Uh, and I don't, or you may have blackmailed me, or you. So yeah, um, so there's a lot of good stuff there. Big thumbs up for me. I had it. I think at one more film blog as you know one of my top ten films of 2011. Uh, sounds like a thumbs up for you. Very much so. I, um, you know, it was one of those rare films that you know a week after I'd seen the film, I was still thinking about the issues that it raised and it was you know very effective okay anything else you want to add nope all right well that concludes this episode if you have questions or comments or suggestions for other films you'd like that you would like for us to look at uh, drop us a line at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com you can also follow ken on twitter at twitter.com backslash ken morefield or read my reviews, including my review of a separation at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!